1: Welcome Hello, to the new welcome Books Network. welcome back to New Books and Political Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Lemis Abdelati from the Maxwell School of Syracuse University. Today, I'll be talking to Ian Sanjay Patel about his book, We're Here Because You Were There, Immigration and the End of Empire, which was published by Verso in 2021. Ian, welcome to the show.
2: Hi, Lemis. Thank you. Thanks for having me on.
1: So I wonder if you could begin the interview by just telling us a little bit about yourself.
2: Uh, Sure. Well, uh, I'm currently assistant professor at Birkbeck College, uh, University of London. And uh, my work uh, explores connections between human rights, global history, political thought, um, and I tend to work historically.
1: Wonderful. And that really comes uh, across in this book. Um, so let's jump in. How did you come to write this book? We're here because you were there.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, as I said, I uh, I began my career uh, thinking about human rights, um, contemporary human rights. Um, but after a while, I became more and more interested in the historical formations of human rights. Um, and then, uh, you know, a few years ago, I started thinking about an episode, a historical episode, which seemed to bring together uh, the professional and the personal. Um, so I, I'd always known uh, that the, my, in my own family background, there was a piece of legislation that made it very hard for my family to migrate to the British Isles, uh, where I was eventually born, I was born in London. Um, so I'd I'd always known about that, and I, and I'd always known that it was a, a sort of strange episode in the sense that uh, I'd been told, growing up, that uh, that my father and my grandparents and uh, the community had uh, full British citizenship. Um, So I'd always sort of known about this. And then uh, at a certain point, I started to read more and more, you know, as you do, uh, given that it was so relevant to my history. Uh, And then the more I dug into it, the more of a remarkable episode it seemed to be, in the sense that you have a group, quite a large group, over 100,000 a group of British citizens who have an identical citizenship to the British Prime Minister at the time, and this is in the late 1960s. Uh, This group of people are ancestrally Indian, um, but they're resident in East Africa, and for a set of reasons, uh, they try to migrate to Britain and they're unable to because there's this piece of legislation which is deliberately designed just for them to stop them coming. So how how is that? So I started thinking to myself, you know, how is how is that possible? How can somebody with uh, citizenship identical to the citizenship held by British people born in British cities like Leeds and London, how can they not have the right, the unrestricted right? To enter their legal homeland, if you like, their ancestral homeland is of course uh, India, South Asia, but their legal homeland is Britain. Um, and there, there, came a sort of tipping point where I thought, you know, I really, I really need to, I should write about, I should write about this, and in, an entire book about this, as it turned out. And there, you know, there was some literature out there on the episode. And I'd been consuming it over the years um, as a, you know, just for my own interest. Um, but I think the the tipping point was really getting to grips with the legal side. So this is really the British nationality law, and the fact that Britain had passed legislation targeting its own citizens. So this is really irregular and quite bizarre that you have British. Uh, policymakers in the 1960s passing immigration laws targeting their own citizens their own nationality law which is highly irregular and unusual as it turns out and really you know I'm not even sure the legislation should have even been called um, immigration legislation Um, so it it got to that point uh, and I thought that, okay, um, I'm going to write about this. And then in order to make sense of this bizarre legal situation uh, and all the intricacies of, you know, how it was possible that these citizens could not be given entry to uh, the place that they're attached to, uh, I had to sort of tell a much bigger political story about it. Um, and, you know, and that was the beginning of the book.
1: So let's dive in um, and begin with the title, right? We're here because you were there. Now, in the book, this uh, sentence is almost an organizational framework. It structures the book. Uh, can I ask you to tell us more about uh, this sentence and how it informs the book's approach?
2: Sure. Well, um, you know, as everybody knows, uh, when you're writing a book, titles are important, Um <laughs> And it's a it's a memorable aphorism or phrase. We're here because you were there. And you know, I, I thought about other titles, but this is the title that really dramatizes what's at stake. Um, you know, why are these migrants coming to the British Isles? The only way of making sense of why they are, a, why they have the citizenship in the first place, is to think about uh, the British Empire, which. Uh, as it turns out is very relevant here even though it's a story in the 1960s um so the phrase we're here become we're here because you were there comes from a uh, a Sri Lankan writer and activist called A Shivanandam um, and he was uh quite active during the 1960s 70s uh, and 80s and this was a sort of um, a campaign, really, a, a, an activist slogan, um, and it and it was picked up and sort of used in uh, in, a, in a variety of circumstances. And I think that it, it it sort of really helps us zone in on this particular this particular type of immigration, where it's it's immigration based on the history of empire.
1: Absolutely. So early on in the book, you provide a discussion of British immigration that uh, emphasizes its global dimensions, and this sort of sets the stage for the subsequent chapters. Uh, can I ask you to tell us about that?
2: Yeah, well, um, you know, normally when you read about British Uh, post-war migration or the history of British immigration, it tends to be told as a domestic story. So it tends to be told as a 20th century story that begins with Jewish migrants who are travelling westwards from uh, the Russian Empire. Uh, But actually, the way that uh, both many migrants themselves as well as the British... Policymakers and elites who were trying to make sense of post-war migration in the 50s and 60s, the way they actually, their vision of what migration was in the British context was actually uh, had, had a different set of routes, which are far beyond the shores of the British Isles. Um, so, an in, you know, an interesting thing about the British Empire, which again is, is sort of easy to forget, is that it was uh, an empire of two halves. There were colonies uh, that didn't have many British people travelling from the British Isles and settling there. And then there were other, others that, that did. And they became, uh, over the years, seen as um, uh, white Anglo-Saxon settler colonies. So the, the, what we're talking about here is the difference between Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, which are all uh, these, these countries, their origins are in British people getting on ships and traveling there to settle. Uh, they are different from places like Jamaica uh, and Kenya, uh, and India, to an extent. Um, and and what happens uh, is that when the, these British people who've who've left Britain and travelled to Canada, New Zealand, Can- uh, New Zealand, Canada, and Australia, what happens is when the when their settler colonialism starts to take root, is they don't want non-white people coming in. So the very first immigration laws in the British context are actually not in the British Isles. They're in places like Canada, Australia, New Zealand and South Africa. And that's actually where you, where you have the origins of uh, the British, the imperial British, trying to keep out non-white people, in this case, Asians, so Asiatic At that time, you know, we're talking here the late 19th century, turn of the 20th century, that was a term referring to Japanese, Indians, and Chinese. And these were the groups that the first immigration laws targeted. So when Britain, if you fast forward to the first immigration laws that post-war Britain passes, they remember remember, um, these original laws that were passed at the beginning of the twentieth century, so I, I thought it was really important to kind of to show these uh, connections because it's important in all sorts of in all sorts of ways for the law, uh, but also thinking about how Brit- post-war Britain, the British Isles, how they saw themselves because really they never had to deal with non-white people migrating in large numbers until after nineteen forty-five. So they they thought of immigration, non-white immigration, as a problem that the Canadians and the Australians and South Africans, that was their problem, and they passed a lot of very discriminatory laws, and the and the policymakers in London tried to keep them sort of as uh, not explicitly racist. And then all of a sudden, by the nineteen sixties, the British are passing, they're the ones passing the the sort of quite obviously racially discriminatory laws.
1: Fascinating. Um, So um, after you sort of set this stage, you tell the story of Britain's post-war immigration and citizenship, and you break that down into two phases, 1945 to 1962, and then 1962 to 1981. So let's maybe start with the 1948 British Nationality Act. Uh, How does that figure into your analysis?
2: Yeah so this is kind of where thing this is the sort of the crunch moment really about the whole the whole book in a way um and you know what this really comes down to is remembering that the end of empire um was a process not an event and it happens it happens over time um and that is, that is so important to remember and Unfortunately, when we look back at these uh, periods of history, we tend to think quite simplistically. So we think, okay, well, empire ended and then nation states began, you know, so it's these sort of neat, neat uh, boxes. But it it really wasn't like that at all. There was actually a whole period where the the boundary between um, empire and nation state was very, very fluid. And it's easy to forget that you know, even you know, for most of the twentieth century, so the first sixty years of the twentieth century, the nation state was only one one kind of uh, political unit. There were there was federation, uh, there was world government, world states, all sorts of different ways of conceptualizing a place politically. Um, and this also applies to citizenship. So it's not as if uh, you can. And this is particularly the case for the former European empires. Um, It's not just the case that one day um, imperial citizenship ended and national citizenship began. And that's particularly the case with Britain. And this is where things get really odd about the British Empire because, you know, when did the British Empire end? You know... um, an obvious, an obvious uh, date would be 1947 when India becomes independent. Now, when India becomes independent, the British Empire, in terms of great power, is pretty much over. The British can no longer marshal uh, huge amounts of people, huge resources, and they, and they can't make use of India in the way that they had done in the Second World War, for example. So, so British great power... And the empire itself is pretty much over uh, in 1947. But of course, the African colonies and the colonies in the Caribbean uh, and in in places like uh, Malaya, which became Malaysia in Southeast Asia, these remain. The British empire actually uh, remains um, until the 1960s. It's really in the 1960s, not the 1940s, when the British empire ends. Um, and this is so crucial to understand because you know when you think about that date, 1948. So we're talking about the British Nationality Act 1948. This is this is one of the only one of three times in the 20th century when the British sat down to create new statutory law on their nationality and their citizenship. So it's a big moment, and it's 1948. So we're post-war. Britain is reeling and uh, uh, very broken from the Second World War. Diminished. Um, India's just got independence. Canada and Australia are, are, are more assertive in their national identity than they've ever been before. You know they're they're still tied to the British Empire constitutionally, but they're clearly nation states in their own right. They accede to they join the, the United Nations separately from. A British block, so you think, well, hang on, this is the perfect opportunity for the British to nationalise their citizenship, to not make their citizenship imperial any longer, because you know it's the post-war world. Every, you know, there's clearly uh, there's change, but the thing is, the closer that you get to that period of history, you realise it was still an imperial age um, to to some extent. You know particularly in terms of what the British were able to do uh, with the support of the United States for a period, particularly as the Cold War kicks in, the United States was prepared to tolerate uh, the British Empire um, for for quite a few years. so what happens in this piece of legislation then in nineteen forty eight is that the British double down on imperial citizenship <laughs> they Start. They create a new category of imperial citizenship, and they give a huge number of colonies uh, full-blown British citizenship. Which means that anybody born in places like uh, Kenya um, uh, or Jamaica are British citizens still in the nineteen. 19- in the late 1940s and onwards. And they even start giving out citizenship rights to other places, like India, that's in the process of creating its own national citizenship. India also has rights of entry and residence in Britain, not as British citizens, but as, as something called Commonwealth citizens, which is where the legal side gets quite complex. But the main thing to remember is that what Britain's trying to do is to say the empire remains unified. That's really what, the, and that you know, so it's about continuity, not change. So, okay, India's got independence. Canada and Australia are going their own way. Um, you know, clearly there's a there's a commitment under the UN Charter to wind up these colonies, and that you know there's no there's no you know Britain's no longer annexing territories. That's long gone. It's really the the countdown to decolonization. Uh, But instead, Britain starts giving out uh, imperial citizenship and saying, actually, we're unified and that there's actually this constitutional thread at the level of nationality, which still connects India, Australia, um, Jamaica, Kenya. And and this is very useful for the British. And they thought that it was an easy, you you know, I still think about this, You know what, what was the rationale? I mean, what the, the most obvious thing to bear in mind here is that the British had no concept of what was going to happen. So let's just pause then and think about this again. It's 1948, they've just passed the British Nationality Act. They've given, they've, they've sustained imperial citizenship. They've given rights of entry and residence to millions of, hundreds of millions of people most of them non white people all around the world, they have no concept that these non white people are going to exercise their right to enter the imperial motherland or that Indians and Pakistanis would start traveling to the former uh, the, the former colonial metropole now. They, they probably, you know, a lot of this was about keeping the family Anglo-Saxon ties alive. So they, they obviously want people in Australia and New Zealand and Canada to be able to travel uh, back to sea, you know, back to their ancestral homelands in, in the British Isles without any nationality issues. But but the, the key point here is that... Um, the ni- the late 1940s it was still very expensive to travel by ship from so to get on a ship and travel from Jamaica to London this was a, this was um, this was a quite prohibitively expensive thing to to do so we're before the age of mass mobility the british had no no idea that what was going to happen next which is of course people in the Caribbean, particularly, African Caribbean people in the Caribbean and uh, Indians and Pakistanis would start actually exercising their legal right of entry in relatively large numbers. I mean, not numbers that would that we would think of as large today, but you know, tens of thousands, they start to they start to exercise that right in the nineteen fifties. And that's the, the game changer, and Britain is left with this piece of legislation that it's passed. And you know the British Nationality Act 1948. As I said, they only passed they only passed statutory law on nationality three times in the 20th century. So this is a huge piece of legislation. You can't just sort of dismantle it easily. There's all sorts of constitutional, political issues that that might come. And you know, it's it's basically like saying we're going we're, we define ourselves. In identitarian terms, this way for the post-war world, but oh, there, there's some Jamaicans and Indians and Pakistanis coming, so we're going to actually dismantle this huge piece of legislation. No, they were they were sort of they were stuck with it, um, and at a certain point, there, as I'll talk about later, there were other reasons why they ended up keeping it.
1: So, so let's let's get into that. So, uh, how how does you know, the, so if you describe these uh, the incredible unanticipated unant- consequences, right, um, of this 1948 uh, British Nationality Act. Um, so how, how does that unfold then uh, in, in later years and decades and how does that inform subsequent legislation?
2: Right. So in the 1950s, uh, people start, non-white people start arriving uh, to the British Isles. And they're full citizens, uh, they're, either, they're either born in colonies, so they have this identical citizenship to somebody born in Manchester, or they're Commonwealth citizens uh, from places like Australia, but those would, those would be Anglo-Saxon most likely, but also India and Pakistan. Um, and they, they also have rights of entry and residence. Uh, and very quickly, British policymakers in the 1950s start panicking. And they, they use, for the first time, a phrase which would, which would later saturate uh, government correspondence. And that phrase is coloured immigration. So coloured immigration obviously was a, a racial denominator... It, in practice, it, it meant people of African, Caribbean or South Asian descent largely, but it could also mean people from Southeast Asia, for example. Um, and they start thinking, you know, what are we going to do? Uh, we've, we've given these, these, we've sustained imperial citizenship. They're coming here legally the only the only option the British have is to recreate what the white settler colonies did—Australia, New Zealand, Canada—about half a century before, um, and they're, they're reluctant to do this because the British saw or have always seen their imperialism as liberal. You know, uh, more British liberal imperialism was not the same as French imperialism, uh, which the british looked down on in in terms of its uh, of how liberal and progressive it was so the i the sort of reputational cost of passing what would be pretty obvious racially discriminatory legislation against their own citizens was not something that they did lightly so the cabinet the british cabinet met no less than nine times during the nineteen fifties and they're sort of umming and ring, you know. And they came to a sort of stopgap solution, which was that they would we, you know, they reached out to the governments of India, West African governments, Caribbean governments, who are who still have a, a sort of surprisingly, you know, close ties to the to the British Isles, you know, either as full-blown colonies or as um Former colonies, um, and say, look, we're, we're not happy about uh, people coming here. Uh, they're coming; for, uh, they have every, they have the legal right, but we don't we don't want them here. And the the Indian government, uh, and some, uh, particularly the Indian government, actually, but also other governments in West Africa and the Caribbean, oblige and start uh, making start not giving out passports as readily. Because think about it, you, you could have a citizenship, but you can't travel. Let's say you're a British citizen and you're living in Jamaica, uh, or you're a Commonwealth citizen with the right of entry into Britain and you're living in India. In order to travel there, you need to have a passport. And so the, the Indian government, among others, start putting quite, punitive educational and financial requirements on giving out passports. So the British think, okay, we've got some kind of solution here. Maybe maybe we don't have to pass legislation to stop non-white people migrating to the UK. But it doesn't work. It doesn't work for a variety of reasons. And then suddenly, you know, by the turn of the 1960s, the British decide to do the unthinkable and they passed the 1962 Commonwealth Immigrants Act, which is an incredible piece of legislation because it ends in one fell swoop, this centuries-old idea of, um, you know, that you are a British subject and whoever you are, you could be born in the colonies, you have the right to enter the the mother the imperial motherland and so on. And this just this ended. And it's a... Legally, it's a complex but but pernicious piece of legislation uh, and it used this particular kind of legal finessing to not be explicitly racially discriminatory in letter, but quite obviously racially discriminatory in practice. And, you know, we have now, we have declassified uh, correspondence from the Home Secretary saying, you know, this is going to work against what he called coloured people exclusively. Mm-hmm. Um so this was a sort of watershed moment for Britain and it was done in the in 1962 particularly to target um African Caribbean people coming from places like Jamaica and Barbados then later in the 1960s in 1968 they passed another piece of law which was targeting um uh, the peop- the group that I began talking about uh so people of Indian ethnicity and descent who are resident in East Africa. And there's a story behind that. But so the the sort of three things here are that they're ancestrally South Asian, legally British, resident in East Africa. And for, again, a complex set of reasons, they are this group, which included my father and grandparents, are trying to migrate to the British Isles. And so Britain passes... An incredible piece of legislation called the Commonwealth Immigrants Act 1968, which really shouldn't be called—it should—it really shouldn't be called immigration law because, you know, presume, you know, intuitively, immigration law relates to aliens. But this is a kind of non-white British citizens act, and uh, through again, quite sort of pernicious uh, and complex legal finessing stops their right of entry. This is the age of Enoch Powell, who some of you may have heard of, some of your listeners, who was this very, you know, the most famous of the uh, anti-non-white immigration campaigners. And a few years later, in 1971, the British completely overhaul their nationality. But they don't, Pass new British nationality law. They just pass another immigration law, which is called the 1971 Immigration Act, and this is very. I, I wonder how this will sound. Uh, what they did is they they said, "You, you people can be, people still can be British citizens um, wherever they may be," um, and remember that the British are sort of hoping that. You know, people are going to take up post-colonial citizenship and they wouldn't sort of keep this, keep their British citizenship, this imperial British citizenship. But you can keep that nominally, but it can only be sort of meaningful uh, and you can only gain the right of entry into Britain. So anybody trying to enter Britain as as a British citizen needs to show an ancestral connection to the territories of the British Isles. So this is a kind of racial encoding of British nation, British nationality or more precisely the right of entry into Britain by saying you need to show that your parent or your grandparent was born in territories of the British Isles themselves, then you can enter, which is essentially a way of keeping white people uh, unrestricted and making sure that non-white people won't be able to enter now just this is so bizarre because think about it uh the only reason those people so these people of indian origin resident in east africa but british by citizenship the only reason they have imperial british citizenship is because many of them were born in kenya when it was still a colony So they gained the citizenship through the territory of the colony, but now they can't actually make the citizenship meaningful by travelling to their legal homeland unless their parent or grandparent has a connection to the territories of the British Isles themselves. Um, and, And, you know, what's so bizarre is that the underlying nationality of Britain remains imperial throughout the 1940s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. It's only in 1981 that finally, after you know some really astonishing episodes, that the British finally say, okay, let's create a national citizenship. And for the very first time in 1981, the British created the current legal term, British citizen, which is totally built around the territories of the British Isles it has no reference to uh, you know the, the, obviously there are uh, very there's very little remaining of um, britain's imperial presence uh, overseas um, so you know coming back to this question we asked earlier um, when did the british empire end well who knows was it was it maybe 1947 when india got independence was it 19 19- when Harold Macmillan talked about the wind of change blowing through Africa and the, the inevitability of African decolonization? Or was it actually in 1981, which is very, very recent, a year after Zimbabwe's independence, um, that Britain finally decolonized?
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it... Remarkable.
1: Um, so let's switch gears a little bit um, and talk about something that's uh, that you've already mentioned uh, several times, which is the Commonwealth. Uh, so in the book, you argue that British elites were seeking to sustain the empire, even as imperial power was being taken away. And that's, that's where the Commonwealth uh, comes in. So can you tell us about that process?
2: Yeah, I mean, this really kind of, we're, we're... I suppose I I came to this, uh, I wanted to know more about this because the the Commonwealth is connected to imperial citizenship. So the two things go hand in hand. Um, And imperial citizenship uh, and Commonwealth citizenship, it caused the British so many problems, you know, and we we haven't mentioned yet, but the British ended up... uh, being ruled racially discriminatory by the European Court of Human Rights in 1973 for these laws, these immigration laws, why did Britain uh, go through all this reputational cost, you know, being criticised for being racially discriminatory so often? And it's a complex question, uh, but I think that we have tended to underestimate Uh, how tenacious British imperialism was uh, in the 19, you know, well, through the 1940s, 50s and 60s. Um, There was just, there was something to be gained for the British to see themselves uh, not simply as a nation state, uh, but as an imperial commonwealth. Now, that word Commonwealth might be unfamiliar. That's just a synonym for the British Empire. They've, they've, they've been using it since the 1920s, actually. The British Commonwealth was synonymous with the British Empire. And the Commonwealth still exists today. You know, you may have seen uh, King Charles being uh, ushered in. There were all sorts of references to the Commonwealth. So Britain... We, there's still a lot of confusion is britain the nation state is britain a uh, a commonwealth what is the commonwealth now the 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 normal sort of vision of the commonwealth is that it it's a sort of post it's a post colonial entity uh but that's not quite right particularly at the level of citizenship um which is what's uh relevant here um so you have this sort of bizarre state of affairs where You know, as I say, after World War II, empire is really under tremendous pressure. It's not simply the burgeoning norms in the UN uh, and the UN Charter um, and the way that um, southern states sort of pivoted the UN towards decolonization. But also um, the United States, which is the leading global power after 1945, it, it sort of it's only going to tolerate empires when it suits Cold War imperatives. So, of course, the uh, the United States didn't allow um, the Netherlands to re to sort of reestablish their imperial rule in Indonesia, but the American U.S. officials did allow the British Empire to sort of live on, and the British the British policymakers they spun out the Commonwealth. Um, But it really has no sort of real substantive power. So I mentioned earlier that real British great power, that's pretty much over when India gets independence. So really they're left sort of clinging at um, influence and also they're left with their imperial constitution. So I guess what I'm getting at here is that the reason that the British allowed imperial citizenship to just roll on and so all the way until 1981, and in the meantime, sort of bandage up non-white immigration within with these laws to keep non-white people out, is because they couldn't let go of this imperial identity. And, you know, if somebody pointed at them and said, well, what is, you know, w- what makes your empire meaningful? Well, by the 1960s, there's increasingly little that makes it meaningful. The there was an imperial political, political economy built around uh, the sterling currency block um, and, you know, sort of imperial trade and trade with former colonies. That's pretty much, you know, that starts to go into abeyance by the end, by the late 1950s. So the British are sort of left by saying, well, we're constitutionally imperial. And if they were to dismantle imperial citizenship, you know, it would cause issues. Not only would you know, there, there are millions of non-white citizens and nationals who were born overseas, they might try to beat the ban and rush to Britain. There's gonna be political fallout, diplomatic fallout. But there's also going to be people looking at Britain and these British elites and saying, Well, you're you really you really must the empire really must be over. Um, because your citizenship is now national. And the British were just simply not prepared to do that. Paradoxically, even as they joined Europe, which was all about you know turning away from empire and turning more towards Europe, particularly at the level of trade, at the level of the constitution and nationality, the British refused to let go.
1: Okay, now, uh, it seems from your book that at the same time, uh, Britain is also operating in a new diplomatic reality, as it were. Um, So I wanted you, uh, if you don't mind, to talk a little bit about the role of the United Nations and also the importance of race in this era.
2: Yes, I mean, uh, a big theme of the book is the fact that Britain legally was able to pass these racially discriminatory immigration laws, but not without reputational cost. Um, Some of this was bilateral diplomatic criticism. Uh, Some of it was sort of hidden from view, other, you know, some of it was was public. Uh, But a, a huge venue for criticism against British policy on all sorts of things, so on immigration, but also on British stance uh, to their empire more generally? you know, Would the British sell arms to apartheid South Africa? This was all being thrashed out at the United Nations, which went through a transformation in these decades, 1940s, 1950s, 1960s. And also, ironically, in the fora of the Commonwealth itself. So the Commonwealth is this sort of vehicle that the British are using to absorb all the real and imagined sources of British power, but in reality, it was a ve- it was a venue where post-colonial uh, governments were very, very vocal <laughs> about criticizing Britain, and this was sort of salt in the wound for British policymakers who were, you know, trying to keep up with a changing world. Um, and really, there is a, there is a huge shift in global values not in the 1940s and in the 1950s, but in the 1960s. The 1960s really is a key decade for all sorts of reasons, for human rights, for decolonization, for the, the, the crystallisation of the norm against racial discrimination. All of this is happening in the 1960s. There are national stories, but there's also an international story in the UN is quite key. It's important to remember that the UN... So the UN, the United Nations, is an outcome of World War II, obviously. Uh, but it began as, a, as, a, as an imperial edifice. You know, it was, there was, we, we tend to think of the, the UN now, uh, in our sort of popular understanding of it, as the sort of the obvious venue for all the states of the world to have their say. But it really wasn't like this. It was, a, it was an organisation that was created by great powers, it was seen to serve the interests of great powers particularly the united states and it was also seen to be friendly enough to empire you know if you if you go to the un charter and sort of dig into the language it's it's interesting because it's sort of half anti-colonial but also clearly it, it allows for colonialism to persist, and you know Winston Churchill was very was very vocal on this that the UN shouldn't impact the uh, the British Empire. But then there's a remarkable transformation, and states uh, in the global South, and particularly India, among others, they really take a, a, a role, and they use the General Assembly as a kind of international public sphere to really pivot the UN towards um, anti-colonial ends. And then the United and then sorry, the 1960s is really this age of um, sort of crystallizing the the norm against racial discrimination. Um, and this happens at the UN. There's actually uh, the very first human rights treaty ever binding treaty is passed in 1965, which is the UN convention banning racial discrimination. Uh, Really interesting. And this sort of comes on the back of huge world transnational criticism of apartheid South Africa. Um, And we really see here the customary international law uh, and all sorts of transnational networks closing in on racial discrimination, which, which makes the British policy so, at odds with a changing world. So the British are passing uh, these pretty obviously racially discriminatory immigration laws at the high watermark of anti-racism and anti-colonialism internationally, which creates this huge sort of cauldron uh, of criticism and uh, self-reckoning for them.
1: Fascinating. So um, the the final part of the book gives a very uh, rich discussion of two particular episodes, the Kenyan-South uh, Asian immigration crisis of 1968 and then the Ugandan-South Asian uh, immigration crisis of 1972. Um, I'm going to ask if you could briefly give us just a, a glimpse uh, of some of your analysis there in these two cases.
2: Yeah, so th- this is about that group that we began talking about um, indians by origin resident in east africa uh, but british by by nationality Um, and in in the late 1960s uh, there's a set of um, policies passed by east african governments in kenya uh, these are sort of majoritarian policies targeting indians but the letter of the policies are actually against non-citizens. So you remember um, that these Indians are not actually Kenyan citizens, they're British citizens. And the, the Kenyan government had made it quite hard, relatively hard, for these Indians to acquire national Kenyan citizenship. So en masse, these Indians in Kenya and then later in Uganda, because of Idi Amin, who expels them all, in 1972, they tried to migrate to Britain. Now, this is really remarkable, because it's Britain's worst nightmare. They've already tried to scupper what they called coloured immigration. It's inc- They're determined, even though the numbers are remarkably small. And the British try to find all sorts of solutions. They try diplomatic channels. They try all sorts of are and, and quite disturbing things, including trying to find an island in the Indian Ocean where all their national, their where all their nationals of Indian descent can can go. Um, and finally, they they think, okay, well, we're going to have to pass legislation uh, to do this, and they and they do. What's so incredible is that they design the legislation so that the remaining white settlers in Kenya are allowed to go back unrestricted, but the the British nationals of Indian descent are restricted. Um, so really, the late 19- these two pieces of legislation are the sort of culmination of this whole story. We're really late in the day now, um, in the sense of uh, we're no longer in the initial post-war period. We're, we're right into the period of decolonization. And these Indians have fallen through the crack of the border between empire and nation-state. And there's so much to say on this, which obviously I won't go into, but these people who were described as the detritus of empire by one uh, British uh, policymaker, uh, they find themselves at the sharp end of, you know, imperial citizenship. Um, and there are all sorts of consequences to this. Um, and the situation is much more severe in uh, Uganda, where Idi Amin has expelled all Asians. He he's quite vague about you know who he means, but it turns out he's particularly targeting uh, British nationals in Uganda. Um, and and this leads to all sorts of things. Uh, but it's it I suppose it's the it's the the sort of culmination of the story that I set out to tell at the beginning. Which is to, to really say how on earth did this how on earth did this happen? What were the implications? And I suppose one thing I'd like to emphasize is that these, I mean, there's a, they tend to be a little bit better remembered now for reasons I can maybe talk about uh, in a little while. But they they've they've tended to go under the radar uh, these episodes, um, but. They caused a sort of constitutional crisis uh, at the time. They caused an international uh, reputational crisis for Britain. And Britain ended up being ruled against in the European Court of Human Rights, which it was a, a sort of a body of the European Court of Human Rights, which were, and in the ruling, they're very, you know, the, the judgment is very explicit. These laws are racist, they're, they're targeting people on the grounds of race and they favor, and they simultaneously favor white people. You know, white people is actually a verbatim quote. Um, and, and you know, this, this, this is a sort of legal and political story, but it kind of comes to a head in the late 60s. Uh, and then there's a kind of aftermath after that.
1: It's, uh, just for listeners, I really want to emphasize that we're, uh, you know, we're skimming over the surface of, uh, of so much rich content that's in the book that you, you really need to pick up this book for yourselves and really uh, get into sort of see sort of the, the masterful way uh, that the book is written and the, the ways that um, sort of people's voices also come across uh, in the telling of, uh, of these, uh, these different episodes. So Ian, uh, I can't not ask you about the connection to current events. Uh, so how does this book help us make sense of some of the things that are going on today?
2: Well, you know, I suppose that uh, well, uh, the, the most obvious um, relevance is for post-war Britain, uh, for, sorry, for post-war, but also contemporary Britain. Um, you know, it, it is also, the book is helpful, I think, for understanding, you know, Canadians and Australians and their background. It's also, it helps us make sense of the Indian and the South Asian diaspora. Uh, but really, what it really uh, hopefully explains a lot about is contemporary Britain. And as I, as I think I mentioned earlier, what is Britain? Is it, is it, a, is it a nation state? Is it a, a Commonwealth? If so, what is, what is the Commonwealth? um you know it, it, if you if you uh sort of follow the the public discourse there's this sort of strange sense in which britain doesn't want to turn away from its past um but that but but actually there are all sorts of which which seems quite you know reasonable on the face of it But actually, if you look at a lot of the issues that are really the power British politics, like Brexit, for example, which was all about you know turning away from Europe and embracing what global Britain? What is global Britain? Um, Immigration is obviously a huge issue. I mean, immigration in Britain today is is distinct from the immigration that I talk about in the sense that it it's much broader it's not just immigration from former colonies but i think that if you really want to get at the heart of the british self image there has been a, a reluctance uh, at the you know at the very least um, to look at the, this history and it, and it, you know it it really is remarkable how little of it is known and you know you can think about you know the, there's a big there's a big piece of irony to the story uh, which is, you know, the current Prime Minister, uh, Rishi Sunak, uh, and and also a former Home Secretary, Priti Patel. These are actually the children of uh, families who were targeted by these laws. Um, Rishi Sunak, his parents come from East Africa, from Kenya, they're Punjabi. If you go back far enough, um, but they were—they they came to the UK from Kenya and they were actually completely implicated in this in this story. So think about that, Rishi Sunak's parents were targeted by an entire piece of legislation designed to keep them out on racial grounds. Kleti Patel's family are coming from Uganda, there's another story there. So you think, okay, this is a perfect opportunity to sort of look back at this history uh, and it could have been done in all sorts of ways, you know, it doesn't have to be a kind of, it could have, it could have really the ways that the opportunities for making sense of it were just vast, you know, it doesn't, doesn't have to be, you know, there was a sense that, okay, we can't be seen to criticize the country or, you know, but it could have, there could have been an illusion to the history and there wasn't, it was was just a sort of remarkable uh, opportunity lost. An opportunity lost is really the story of, you know, if, you, if you're growing up in Britain, uh, whatever the decade may be, you'll find, your, if you go to a sort of local school, you'll find yourself kind of in history classes and there's a whole group of you who are connected to the empire. But, it, but that story tends not to be told. I mean, it was particularly the case for me. I, I imagine, you know, one would hope it's sort of changing now. Um, so those are some of the contemporary relevances, I think. And, you know, I'll was i I'll, I'll leave, I'll end on this. Um, when Prince Charles had, uh, sorry, King Charles had his coronation, um, I thought, what, what's going to happen with the Commonwealth? You know, this, this sort of the realms of the Commonwealth and the sort of history of imperialism. Uh, is Charles going to become head of the Commonwealth? Because it's not meant to be a hereditary post, you know, the, the, it's, it's not, but Charles was declared to be head of the Commonwealth as if it were a hereditary post. And if, it, if we're being asked to believe that it is a hereditary post without the consent of, you know, without a sort of voting process, then, then what, what does that mean? And what does it sort of say about the identity uh, of, of, of Britain?
1: And I, I think that's you know sort of your, what you were just saying is part of the reason why your book makes such an important intervention here. Um, so readers uh, who pick up your book will will find you know this incredibly sophisticated and also beautifully written uh, account, um, which begs the question you know were there were there any challenges that you faced uh, while you were researching or writing the book?
2: Well. Um... I think that the I mean writing a book is is challenging in itself, but uh, I think some of the method the methods were hard. So, for example, this is a this is a legal story, but it's also much more than that. It's a political story. It's a human story. It's about experience and identity. Um, so the division of labor between law, uh, politics lived experience. that was you know t- testimony and other s- source materials that that was really hard um, to try to to try to keep those uh, in balance. Um,
1: okay, Ian, we've taken up more of your time than I uh, that I initially intended. Uh, so I just want to ask you one final question, uh, which is what are you working on now?
2: Uh, well, uh, I'm working on a new book. Uh, which I'm, you know, quite far along in the... So this conversation was a very welcome uh, respite from <laughs> getting on with that book. And it tells a, a somewhat complementary story, but it's really focused on South Asia. Um, so it's, it's, you know, quite a lot of this first book was about people of Indian and South Asian origin who, who are in the world um, so I really wanted to sort of tell that story on a much bigger scale. And, uh, you know, there's different ways it could go and it's still very much in flux, but I'm, I'm really enjoying writing it.
1: That sounds incredibly interesting. I hope that you will come back to the show and talk to us uh, about that it. book when, I, when it comes out. Uh, Ian, I really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you for being on the show.
2: Thank you so much, uh, Lamise. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you.
1: The book is Ian Sanjay Patel's We're Here Because You Were There, Immigration and the End of Empire, published by Verso in 2021. Thank you for listening.